And it's a very fascinating book as we learned throughout the story last week because we've looked about a historical book that was written around the 6th century. And that's quite a while back in history, yet it tells us some very profound things about not only history, about how God is moving in history. And for those of you who haven't really read the Bible before, one thing I want you to know as we enter into the book of Daniel is that the Bible is the story about one person. And church, what is his name? Jesus, right? And so all of this history, even dating back to the 6th century where the book of Daniel is written, gives this foretelling, gives this expectation of even how to understand and identify who Jesus is. And so when we read through the story of Daniel, we're reading through the history that tells us uh, not just what God has done, but ultimately gives us this expectation for who and how to understand Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 2 of Daniel. Uh, Lee was supposed to read it for me this morning, but he's sick, and so I'm going to read it with you. And I'm going to read the whole story for us, because Daniel is a story, and it is a wild story. And we're going to read through it together. Now, before we get to chapter 2, uh, the setting of chapter 1, we're, we're talking about two massive kingdoms, so to say, in the 6th century. We're talking about the Israelites... And what was the, the nation that captured the Israelites? What was it called? Babylon, right? And Babylon was not just a nation in the Bible, but it becomes this archetype. It becomes this image of a world and kingdoms and people that are against God, that want to battle against God, that want to live life apart from God. And so they take uh, the nation of Israel and overthrow them, and they capture a bunch of people. And we are introduced to four characters in chapter 1 of Daniel. And who are the four characters that are captured by the Babylonians? The first one should be obvious. Daniel, right? Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which was their Babylonian names given to them, but they also have Hebrew names that were taken from them. And again, these four guys were taken in what's called exile. They were taken from their homeland. They're put in a completely foreign context, and everything has been stripped from them. Everything has been taken away. And so what are some of the things that we saw in chapter 1 that were taken away from these four young men, these four teenagers at the time? Yeah, they, they became eunuchs, right? Which is probably the worst. If you're a teenage boy, is that not the worst thing that could be taken away from you? Right? We're getting a little inappropriate now, but that's okay. <laughs> so they were taking literally their ability to have offspring, their literally ability to create a future. What were some other things taken away from them? Their names, right? They were given Babylonian names. They were taking their Hebrew names. Their culture, right? Their family, their homeland, everything. Even their God is being mocked and they're forced to basically be in, in doctrine with Babylonian culture. And so all these things are being taken away from these four young men. And yet we see God do some incredibly powerful things through them and bring this expectation for what we call the kingdom of God as Jesus arrives. And so let's read through chapter 2 together. And I'm going to read through the whole chapter, so bear with me, and then we're going to process what is this story about and what does it have to do with us. So chapter 2. In the second year 
of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Again, who is Nebuchadnezzar? He's the king, right? King of Babylon. The most powerful empire in the world at this point in the second century. And Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, more so nightmares, because his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. In other words, what's going on? Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. I know you guys are a facade. I know you guys, as soon as I tell you the dream, you're going to make up something to make me feel better. And you're going to lie to me. And he sort of says, I'm on to you. I I know that this is trickery. I know that this isn't truth. And so he literally threatens them with their lives. The threat of a king. But then verse 6, if you show the dream at its interpretation... You shall shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time changes. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Interesting. And so we we have this king who's overseeing the most powerful empire in the world at this time, And yet, his nightmares plague him, don't they? They literally overcome him to the point where he's saying, if no one can figure out what is going on, I'm about to kill everyone. And he has this rampage on his mind. Isn't that interesting that the king, for us, for us who struggle with anxiety and worry to think about, oh, if our circumstances just change, things will get better, yet we have a king who is powerful over everything, and yet he is plagued with worry and anxiety. Fascinating. And this is how the Chaldeans answered the king. They said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or encanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it. And I mean, we're on that same page, aren't we? If someone comes to you and says, hey, I had a dream, tell me what that dream is. Anyone here going to be able to answer that? 
No. But not only are they hopeless in themselves, and not only do they come to the realization that everything they frame themselves to be is a facade, they say this next. No one can show it to the king except who? Except the, the gods. And what's their version of gods? Whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, in the Babylonian culture, in the polytheistic religion, they said, we have all these gods, but they don't actually care about humanity. They're not involved with the day-to-day life that we experience as humans. They could care less about a king and his dreams, even the most powerful king in the world. And they come to this realization that not only do we have no power over this world, but even the gods we believe in have absolutely no power in this world. Fascinating. Verse 12, because of this, how did Nebuchadnezzar react? He was angry. He was furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. In other words, if you can't do anything for me, what's the point of your existence? Verse 13, so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Because what's the problem with Daniel and his friends? We realize that they had basically grown up in prosper and prestige. They graduated from the Babylonian universities. They were part of the wise men. They hadn't been asked about this question yet, but that places them in the category that if Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all the wise men, where does that place Daniel and his friends? They're in that category too. Their life is literally threatened. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to a king. That's a pretty bold move, right? It's a pretty wild thing to put yourself in that position. But later on we read, why? Why is Daniel this so bold that he is willing to stand before Nebuchadnezzar? We read in verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And so Daniel's response is first and foremost, when literally his life was on the line, what does Daniel do? He goes to God. He goes in prayer. He gathers with his friends and says, we need to seek out God. And God answers that prayer, and God gave him this supernatural vision, this supernatural dream, this beautiful revelation. And Daniel answered in his prayer and his thanksgiving to God. He said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king's interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name again was Belshazzar. That's his Babylonian name. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show you the king, the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Think about that for a second. What did the Chaldeans and all the other astrologers just say in verse 11? There's gods up there, but they don't hang out down here. They don't care about what's going on. They're disconnected from our world. And yet Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven who truly does care about what goes on here in this world, in this age. And he reveals the mysteries that you deal with. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. So here comes the dream. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. In other words, Daniel is saying, don't worship me because I know these things, but worship the God who revealed them to me. Verse 31, he says, you saw, king, and behold, a great image this image, mighty and of exceedingly brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of a summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now let me tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, 
the King of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into his hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So what's Nebuchadnezzar thinking right now? Sweet, I'm the gold. That's what you want to be, right? I'm the gold. I'm the ruler. He's happy right now. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over you all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this, the dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. It's a wild dream, isn't it? We're going to explain a lot more in depth in a little bit, but basically, Nebuchadnezzar is now coming to sort of the realization, oh, I'm the gold, I'm the head of the statue, and yet there's a stone that's going to destroy everything, and that stone is the kingdom of God. I have a lot to say on that later. I'm super excited for this section. But this is how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to who? Daniel. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's temptation is still to worship Daniel. Again, Babylonian culture was all about the worship of men. And Daniel was another man to be worshipped. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon but Daniel remained in the king's court, and that is the end of chapter 2. Wow, you guys did awesome holding in on that. <laughs> That's a long story, but I mean, it's a, it's a wild story. And so what is going on here? What is this story all about? Well, first of all, we have a dream come, right? We have a king who is plagued by this dream and really this nightmare, and uh, interestingly enough, Daniel reveals the wildness of this dream, and he reveals that this dream would truly become a place of 
revelation, so to say, of the fault of the kings and the gods. And something I want to point out here, I think it's absolutely fascinating for us just to ponder on for a minute. Because it says this, there is no man on this earth who can interpret the dream, and likewise, there is no gods that can reveal this dream. In other words, finally there's some honesty, finally there's some reality that all the Babylonian worship was a facade, that it meant nothing, that there was no power. And unless the king actually told them the dream, there's nothing that they can do. They're powerless. And this is not what the king wants to hear. And I think something that's crucial for us to realize here is a counterfeit spirituality or even a counterfeit religion does not work when you need it most, especially at the point of death, amen? These men, their lives are literally being threatened right now. Death is on the horizon for all of them, and all their spiritual practices and all their spiritual endeavors and all their religious understandings add absolutely no hope for them. And yet on the other hand, for Daniel, what does he come to realize? He, he tells the king, and he prays to his friends that there is a God, and he knows what's in the darkness, the light dwells with him, and there is a God who reveals mysteries. There is a God in heaven. And so Daniel, before he even knows the dreams and interpretation, he wants to talk to God. He wants to enter into prayer. He wants to entrust his very life with his God, Yahweh. Why? Because he deeply trusts God. Now, if I was Daniel, there would be a lot of things going on in my mind right now. There would be the sense of, okay, my life is on the line. Who here would be going into panic mode? Who here would be freaking out? Who here would be blaming God and saying, God, how can you allow this to happen? This is one more thing where you, we feel like you failed us. You put us into exile. Now we're going to be dying. Uh, there's another mentality that could be happening in the mind of Daniel as well. Is he might be thinking... Look at this Babylon empire who completely took everything from my family and my heritage and my religion. Why don't I just let them all die? If the king wants to destroy them all, so be it. I'm willing to die as well to see that happen. And so a lot is going on in Daniel's mind, but at the end, Daniel resolved to pray. Why pray? He didn't pray like the Chaldeans and all these other Babylonian spiritual people. He prayed with a deep sense and a trust in a God who was personal and a God he believed would seek to restore and a God who he believed would seek to save. And he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Isn't that good news, church? That is the best news that we could ever hear. That even we as humans throughout centuries and throughout the existence of humanity, we've always been a, a people who, who realize there's something beyond us. That there is a God out there. There's gods out there. There's been this pursuit of humanity for ages and ages. And yet the question arises, well, 
who is the God that actually created us and who is the God that actually cares about us? And in history, in this second, a sixth century document, we realize this beautiful reality that there is a God who created us and there is a God who cares about us. And doesn't that change our entire perspective on life? Does, doesn't that change how we go through struggle, how we go through hardship, how we go through pain, where we can finally realize that there's a God in heaven who cares? It changes everything. And he, he realizes this God is, is going to bail them out. And that's exactly what we see God do. And here's what's wild. Daniel doesn't just get the interpretation of the dream from God. But he also gets the courage and the boldness to proclaim this to the king of Babylonian, Babylon. Because before we, we get into the interpretation of this dream, we, we have to realize the courage and boldness of Daniel here. Because yes, he got the interpretation of the dream. Amen? God brought that to him. But now, who does he have to tell the dream to? The king. And at the end of the day, even though Nebuchadnezzar is sort of, okay, you're the gold, you're on top of the idol of the statue, what happens at the end of the dream? He gets destroyed. The stone crushes everything. Who wants to go to a king and say, hey, you're going to be destroyed? So, I mean, even to say the interpretation of the dream, Daniel's life is still threatened here. And yet, he still has this deep sense of trust in who God is. And so, I think this is key for us to realize truth has to be told with, with boldness and courage. Even though there's a threat with truth sometimes, truth to God is the utmost importance in our lives, even when it comes a threat to share that truth. And so this is what Daniel shares, and this is obviously a picture. It's, it's not probably what Nebuchadnezzar actually saw in his dream, but this is sort of a description of what it looked like. And so this statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, head of gold, Right? And according to Daniel, the interpretation, the head of gold is who? Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Babylonian Empire, right? It's this Babylonian Empire that was incredibly powerful in that 6th century. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. And the Babylonians were really the world's first superpower in history. I mean, we talked a lot about that last week, but even today's standards, Babylonian was a powerhouse. And so... This beautiful reality that Nebuchadnezzar's like, okay, I'm the gold head, I'm the most powerful, I'm happy now. But let's keep processing. Um, under that head of gold was a, a chest and arms made of what? Silver. Or silver first, bronze, the little skirt there, as you can see. So these chests and arms made of silver, well, what does this have to do? Well, uh, historians really believe that this represented the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so we'll even see in the book of Daniel, the Medo-Persian Empire will take over the Babylonians within 60, 70 years here. And so even in the story of Daniel, we see this coming to fruition. Um, later on, we see that the belly and the thighs sort of in that area, uh, it's made of bronze. And bronze was most likely 
uh, Greece, where you see the Babylonians have a superpower, the Medo-Persians take over, then who takes over the Medo-Persians? Who's good at history in here? Yeah, Alexander the Great, right? So the Greco Empire. And after Greece comes along, there's the legs of iron, which represents Rome, uh, the kingdom that conquered Greece in 63 BC. And so, again, um, all of these images are empires and nations basically taking over one another. All the major kingdoms of history are being defeated over and over again. And this bottom line is the, the mixture of iron and clay for the feet, which was mostly like the Roman Empire being shattered into different kingdoms and nations. And so we call it the Greco-Roman Empire today in history. But this divided nation of the Roman Empire scattering yet being divided in so many kingdoms and nations. And so what's going on here? Basically, Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream and saying, here you have all these major kingdoms of history. And all of them look like they're going to be strong and look like they're going to conquer all of the world and humanity and these nations and kingdoms that will last forever. And yet, even now, as we know from history, uh, do any of these kingdoms rule and reign today? No. And, and I find it absolutely wild of how Daniel describes the defeat of these kings. Uh, remember, this is a 6th century document, okay? And yet this is what we read. We read, in the days of those kings of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall... Break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And so we're talking about a stone represented as what? What does a stone represent? Well, first, we'll get there, but first the kingdom of God, right? In other words, God's kingdom will rule and reign forever. And the stone of representing God's kingdom comes and crushes this entire statue. And it's this defeat, it's this destruction. Now, now we'll get to Jesus, okay? Now here's my favorite part. So again, here's, here's the wild aspect of Jesus' life being predicted and being expected all through the Old Testament narratives, all through the Old Testament, even a document like this that's written 6 BCE, you see this expectation. And then Jesus comes on the scene with all these other expectations about who the Messiah would be, the Savior, the, the, the Savior of humanity. And the first thing that Jesus says is this. He says, repent. Why? For... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus is saying, the king of the kingdom of God that's anticipated and expected all through the Old Testament story, especially here in Daniel, all these expectations have now come into fruition because I'm here. The king of heaven is here. 
And that's how Jesus literally starts his ministry. So if we want to understand who Jesus is and we want to understand uh, how he identified himself, we need to read him in the sense of all these Old Testament expectations being fulfilled. And it's beautiful because we see this stone then, this imagery that Daniel gives in the dream. The stone is cut out how? Not by, anyone remember, human hands. In other words, the stone that destroys all these kingdoms is not cut out by human hands. In other words, it's not one human kingdom that destroys, it's the kingdom of God. And it's, it's this interesting reality because this, this complete contrast to the statue of Babylon. Again, the statue of Babylon, which represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream the, the work of the greatest human art and skill and craftsmanship, um, it was nothing compared to the supernatural work of the stone being cut out to destroy it all. And it will crush all these other kingdoms. So we see this language of Jesus saying, I am the king that has come to destroy all their kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world that Babylonian literally represented. Not only that, but when you think about the value of all these substances, what is the cheapest value? What is the most worthless, so to say, out of all these elements in this dream? Is it the gold? Is it the silver? Is it the bronze? What is it? It's the stone. It's just granite rock. It had no value in that kingdom. It's the least valuable. And yet, here's the beautiful thing. This is, again, a description of the kingdom of God. Despite being eternal and divine, it's going to look like something small and poor and weak. And is that not how literally Jesus entered into this world? We call the, through Christmas time, we, we call Jesus God incarnate, which means God in flesh, where God came to us in human baby form, a small, meager baby. And we see his ministry very localized, where he hardly had any campaigns. He, he didn't have anything that would um, uh, bring his fame beyond the empire. And yet, where do we see the kingdom of God going? after Jesus. We see the Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God, how it's going to expand through the world, how the rule and reign of God, how God's purposes and desires will come to this world where the Babylonians' desires and the kingdoms of this world of evil and injustice will be defeated. And Jesus says this will come through the kingdom of God. And after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, what do we see happen to the world? What happens to the church? Spreads. Wildfire. Human, human history is still processing this, of how vastness the movement of the kingdom of God, of the church, has been. And it's, it's fascinating to me because this stone from Daniel becomes what? The stone becomes a mountain. And in the history of the church, this is exactly what we've seen when Jesus preached about the kingdom of God and what it would look like and how it would come to fruition. This is exactly what we see, that the church literally spreading throughout the world. 
And, and we today see so many witnesses of this. And I mean, we as a Canadian church are such a small glimpse of the global church, aren't we? Such a small glimpse. And we look at what's going on in places like Africa, when we look at what's going on in places like China, when we look at places as we're going to talk about next week in our mission conference, places like Iran, where the church is growing despite all odds. It's truly the fruition of what Jesus told us His kingdom would be about. Now again, what's wild to me is the very concept that Daniel brings out of this dream revealed by God gives us a glimpse of the story of God through Scripture and how Jesus becomes so, so crucial to understand this kingdom of God language. It fits with this mission of God. And so, let me bring it down for us. What are some things that are crucial for us to understand about this story then? Again, it's this powerful, influential story, but what does it mean for us? How does it transform the way we frame and live our lives? Well, I want to talk about a few. And the perspective I want to talk about is primarily for how do we influence in exile? How do we influence in exile? How do we influence for the kingdom of God and the world of Babylon, so to say? And there's some wild things that I think comes out of this story from Daniel chapter 2. And I, I think the first one that is a major key point is our identity leads to influence. In other words, who we define and understand ourselves to be will dramatically change how we interact with the world and culture around us. And when we think about the story of Daniel... The whole mentality and drive of the Babylonians was to do what to Daniel and his friends? To completely take away their identity. To completely infiltrate them with Babylonian culture. This was literally the, the, the strategy of the Babylonians. And the way that the Babylonians conquered was, was quite genius. I mean, this is one of the reasons why they were such a massive superpower in this time and age of history. Because rather than just conquering with pure military might, they had a subversive strategy. It wouldn't just be military might and political might. It would be literally taking their narratives and their creation stories and their ideas of who God is and literally educating the leaders of conquered cultures. And this is exactly who Daniel is. Again, what, what was Nebuchadnezzar's goal in bringing Daniel his friends? How did he seek them out? He said, here's the best of the best in this Israelite culture. If we take the best of the best from this culture and we turn them over to our culture, make them leaders, that is going to drastically influence the way that our power moves forward throughout this world. And yet, here's the problem. Daniel and his friends, as we learned from chapter 1, they did what? They, our word, does he remember? They re, they resolved, Right? They resolved to follow the ways of their God and not be influenced by the Babylonians. And so, again, this is, this is wild to think about because think about the identity that they held on to. Now, 
to bring into the Babylonian culture, there would have been a massive temptation for them just to get rid of all their identity as Jews and Israelites. Why? Because Babylonian culture celebrated everything a teenage boy would desire in life, so to say. Babylonian culture celebrated sex and the ability to have sex with whoever you wanted, right? Is sex not a temptation for teenage boys? 100%. They celebrated money and affluence and power and prestige. All these temptations are around these teenage boys. And again, they're probably 14-year-olds at this point. How do you say no to that? They resolved. And these are things that remind us of how important their identity was to actually be people of influence. Because if they were sucked into Babylonian culture, if we read about Daniel getting drunk all the time, sleeping around, doing whatever he wanted, not resisting, not resolving, do you think we would be reading about Daniel having such a massive influence on this Babylonian empire? No. It wouldn't have happened at all. And yet he resolved to be completely separated from the stories and temptations of Babylon so that he could have influence. And there, there's another little neat thing in, in Daniel that sort of points to this identity question. Um, I didn't know whether to bring it up because it's, it's sort of a, a weird thing, but there, there's these, all these documents of Daniel throughout history. And, and a lot of scholars were puzzled because they, they realized that the, the Babylonian names in these manuscripts of Daniel were spelled wrong. And so they're saying, what's going on here? There's, there's these mistakes. Was there transcribal issues? And then we get the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, which gave us tons more manuscripts of Daniel. And those manuscripts had misspellings as well of the Babylonian names. And, and scholars begin to realize that what is going on in Daniel is he is purposely misspelling these Babylonian names. Now, why would he do that? He's saying something. He's saying, you can't give us an identity. You can't tell us who we are. We know who we are in our God. And we will live out that identity. And, and so here's... Here's the thing, especially in our culture, in our world today, there's so many external influences that tell us how to define ourselves, that teach us how to identify ourselves. And yet, what will lead us to actually influencing our culture around us for the good and for God's purposes and God's glory is when we actually have our identity as kingdoms of, uh, citizens of the kingdom of God and children of God who are set apart for His purposes not to indulge in our own lustful desires as a Babylonian culture would. And so our identity is so crucial for how we understand the influence around us. Another key thing, our discipline is not in vain. Now, who describes himself as a disciplined person? <laughs> wow, hardly any of you. Any of you? I guess not. I got a few hands in the back there. Why do I say our discipline is not in vain? Well, it's hard to be disciplined when you don't see a purpose behind it, right? 
And when we read the story of Daniel and his friends, we read, especially in chapter 3, that they spent three years in formal education, right? And they were incredibly disciplined, and they led to the top of their class, so to say. Now, what would draw a teenage boy, which is obviously, I remember from my teenage years, incredibly hard to be disciplined in study, (laughs) what would lead them to have such discipline? Well, they realized that their discipline would not be in vain, that it would be used for something. And back in verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. In other words, these were incredibly articulate, educated young men. Now, at times we we can see that... uh, Education has its downfalls or its flaws, but Daniel is a book that highly values education, even from so-called what we would maybe call a secular perspective. They deep-dived into Babylonian study. They deep-dived into the educational formats of their day with incredible discipline. And guess what? Did God not use that for His good? God used that to drastically transform the culture and world around it, and God helped them. So they sought then to be really investors of that culture and sought to invest in learning and education so that they could influence that culture. Uh, I think that's a, a a high needed statement for us in our culture today, especially as we we move more to anti-intellectualism. We, we devalue education. It's this horrible trend in Canada right now. We distrust secular or, uh, scholarly authorities. These are premises that we need to value much more in our culture because God uses those things in incredibly powerful ways. So realizing that our discipline, what we learn, how we educate ourselves is never in vain. And here's probably the most significant one of this chapter as well. Our power comes from where? God. Our power comes from God, not self. And again, that beautiful contrast in 2.11 with 2.28 where basically all the Chaldeans say, our our gods aren't here to help us. Our gods have no power. And yet Daniel and his friends can boldly say, well, guess what? Our God is powerful. And our God is active and involved in this world. And our God will transform things. And he comes with this posture. Why? Because he prays. He submits himself to God in relationship. And we realize later on in in Daniel, this is the first time we read about Daniel praying in chapter 2, but later on we read in 6.10 that Daniel was someone who prayed three times a day. In chapter 9, we have this beautiful vision of how he prayed. And this realization of prayer was this dependence upon God, realizing that in all the midst of the chaos of circumstances of life and all the threats that come against us, our only hope is God himself and God's power. That's why we must pray for God's power. And so... We, we see Daniel then enter into this boldness and courage, not just to interpret the dream, but to tell it to the king because the power of boldness and courage came from God himself. And so let's pray to that extent. Let's pray to that end. 
Let's devote ourselves to pray. Please bow with me. Gracious Father, we come before you. First of all, celebrating that there is a God in heaven who explains the mysteries of this world. And Lord, so often as, as humans, we, we walk through this life confused, searching for answers, searching for meaning, searching for purpose, searching for identity. And we look to all these things in our culture, we look to all these things in our world, and yet we find that they leave us all empty. They leave us powerless, just as the Chaldeans discovered. And yet you, Lord, when we have a relationship with you, when we know you, the living God, who hears our prayers and cares about our situations and longs to bring salvation and healing, Lord, when we find you, we find a God who is actively involved in our lives. And so we pray that as we, we walk through this world in exile, as we long and await for the fruition of the kingdom of God where all things will be made right, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would continue to push against the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that celebrate evil and injustice and violence and marginalization. Lord, we pray that your kingdom of love and justice and mercy and grace, the eternal kingdom that cannot be thwarted, would continue to dominate this world and continue to expand as you have been throughout history, and that we would place our trust in this reality. And in doing so, we'd realize we can have all the boldness and courage that we ever need to step out against uh, the Babylonian empire, so to say, knowing that you are a God who is faithful to us, you are a God who hears our cries and our prayers, and you are a God who answers them, and you are a God who empowers us to move through this world. And so I pray first and foremost for our identities. Lord, we can identify ourselves in so many ways. And yet what matters is we identify the way that you see us as our creator, how you have created us to be identified and to live out of the implications of that identity. And Lord, I pray that you would give us this deep sense of discipline, this discipline for spiritual formation, this, this discipline for education, this, this discipline to grow in wisdom and knowledge so that we can be used for your purposes. And Lord, also that we would be deeply devoted to prayer, knowing that you are the God who empowers us. And so all the circumstances and situations that we face in this world that, that can seem overwhelming, that can seem so defeating, and yet to deeply have a trust in your power that you can accomplish your good and your glory in whatever way you desire. And so we pray that we would have such a deep sense of trust in your faithfulness to work, O oh God. And we thank you that you are a God who is trustworthy, a God who we can depend on through every circumstance in life. Lord, even when everything seems to be falling apart, as Daniel's story tells us, you are faithful and you are good. We thank you for that, our Father. Amen.